Welcome back to our third and final episode of Let's Talk About Environmental Education. I'm Emma. I'm Alexa. I'm Leah. And I'm Tatiana. We are a group of sophomore honors students at American University in Washington, D.C. This semester, we researched five states in Appalachia. Those were Virginia, West Virginia, Kentucky, and Ohio. We wanted to look at how effectively Appalachian schools were teaching about the environment. This episode, we will be talking about barriers to environmental education, as well as some of the ways educators are currently pushing for change. I'm going to pass it off to Tatiana to get us started. Some trends that we noticed were, for example, big cities having more developed plans and, for example, more opportunities in richer and more affluent areas. And Nancy Dorman actually speaks about this trend as well. This is anecdotal uh, uh, information that I have from my interactions with teachers and schools and with other environmental educators um, is that it is that it just it is unfortunately still in our state something that is there are greater opportunities in more affluent parts of the state and in more affluent school districts and there's 145 school districts in Tennessee and every school district is autonomous in many 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 ways and then of course there's some there's some 2000 schools statewide something like that and, you know, they all function, um, and certainly all the school districts function very much autonomously. And, of course, their funding bases are based on, you know, there's a state formula and there's, there's state money that comes down. But then there's also the local assets that uh, local communities can bring to bear. And it's, it's true that in the more affluent parts of our state, the more access to this type of uh, resource environmental learning, environmental literacy that that uh, children get. Yeah, I think this is a really valid point. I know, especially in Ohio, a large amount of funding comes from local property taxes. So if some districts have a lower socioeconomic status than other districts, it's easy to see how these differences could compound into larger differences in funding which then sort of continues this cycle of some areas being able to make more money than other areas and then producing generations with the skills to produce more money than their counterparts. And I also think it brings up the question of how do you make funding equitable now that we see these issues? Like how can we ensure that everyone is getting the right funding and that they need so that we can ensure that all schools are allowed to have access to environmental education and other educational opportunities as well. So I think especially in Appalachia, one of the biggest patterns we've seen of barriers is that many of these rural communities are extremely isolated, both physically and socioeconomic-wise. And again, like Alexa said, I don't think that this is just an issue that specifically affects environmental education, but education as a whole. So for instance, Schools that are closer to colleges or near national parks will have a lot more opportunities than schools that are isolated, both physically and socioeconomic-wise. And this trend was explained by Eric Engel. Ohio has some larger urban centers uh, like Columbus and Cleveland and Cincinnati, and Toledo and a few others. And so they, 
you know, sometimes those larger urban centers do have better edu science educational standards on climate change and environmental issues uh, than some of the smaller areas do. Although there is one smaller area that's kind of a bastion around here for uh, what we're looking for. It's kind of a model of what we hope the rest of the area can become, and that's Athens, Ohio, um, the home of Ohio University. Um, and it's just this little bastion of kind of progressivism and, um, you know, scientific understanding in an otherwise, um, let's just say, not progressive area. And so, and, and part of that has to do with universities, right? You know, so Columbus has Ohio State University and West Virginia, the most progressive part of our state that's doing the best with education standards on the science is Morgantown, the, you know, where West Virginia University is, the, the state's namesake. And even better than that is Marshall, which I graduated from down in Huntington, West Virginia. Um, they have environmental and sustainability programs down there that are doing absolutely incredible work. So a lot of that has to do with does your town, is your town or city uh, or locality close to a place that has a university or a college? Um, and it seems like the closer you get to those institutions of higher education, especially if they get a lot of research dollars and they're invested in STEM programs, the better the education is at the lower schools as well. I can definitely see physical location having a particularly large impact on the environmental programs that are available to schools and to teachers. A lot of the project coordinators we've talked with operate out of state parks or work in close relation with the natural environment. So districts that are closer to these state parks or these landmarks are gonna have more access to programs and non-formal educators than isolated communities. And this definitely connects back to like the busing idea and funding, because if for these isolated communities, it's especially important that they have transportation to be able to go to these national parks or visit these colleges and be exposed to nature. And when there's a lack of funding and they can't provide transportation for these students, it makes it especially difficult for them to have access to environmental education. Yeah, exactly. And I think this can even lead into questions on things such as internet access. If students or educators aren't able to access the internet or are disproportionately disadvantaged in being exposed to these different programs, there's no way they're going to know that these opportunities are available and no way to get their students to these opportunities. Interestingly, Joe Brem, the Environmental Education Director at Rural Action, highlights how growing up in rural areas made him care about the environment and wanted to go into the field. So I grew up in a kind of rural area and, you know, spent pretty much all my time outside with my brothers and, and my dad would take us uh, to the creek and play around. So, you know, I think that was definitely formative. Um, mm -hmm. And I just, I, I can't remember not caring about uh, the natural world. He also talks about how people in rural areas tend to spend more time outside, and this leads to them caring about the environment more. And, I, you know, I think 
Southeast Ohio being pretty rural, you know, a lot of kids just have, are naturally, you know, exposed to to natural systems, you know, like a lot of kids grow with some hunting, fishing experience or farming or, um, or hunting for ginseng, which is kind of a special plant that grows in our region. Um, but then again, you have a lot of kids just like maybe in urban areas as well that, um, that really don't spend any time outside They're on video games or phones or tablets, you know, for the vast majority of their day. Um, so that, you know, we definitely have some of that down here as well. Um, but I think one of the main impediments to people knowing the important things about their environment is kind of the structure of how, you know, public schools are run, how, you know, basically our economy <laughs> is set up. Because, like, you know, we probably would all know a hell of a lot more about sustainable agriculture if we were, if our our main job was just growing food. Yeah, I think the exposure aspect for young kids is a really integral part of fostering that passion. But I also think that it's then up to the school systems and educators to bring that passion to the next level and teach more on the academic side. So yeah, I agree with Leah. I feel like that's been a reoccurring theme we've been seeing, like the importance of starting environmental education and especially exposure at a young age, but definitely expanding on the student's knowledge and having more technical knowledge of the environmental processes and issues is on the schools and the system in terms of implementation and making sure they have access to accurate research opportunities or accurate information in general. I can remember growing up in a really rural area that my interest in the natural world was definitely sparked by being outside 24-7, but I think a really formative point in my life was that this interest was taken to the next level through my high school education and a specific teacher that showed me it was possible to do this for a career path rather than just caring about it in a personal way. Going off of Leah, I think to her point, communities that are farther away from city centers can still have exposure to the environment through like the outdoor experience, but it's still important that they have exposure in their schools as well. And connecting with your point, Alexa, Nancy Dorman talks about her experience in linking schools and the outdoors. You know, uh, as, an, as a park interpreter, you know, um, I understand that people care for what they care about, if that makes sense. They take care of the things that they care about, and they care about things that they know about and that they have experiences with and they have direct contact with. And um, when when children don't are not exposed to nature and the outdoors as, as young people, then they... Uh, then they don't grow up to be adults that care about those sorts of things. And uh, so I'm a big, big advocate of the role of schools. I'm a, a huge believer in the importance of outdoor classroom spaces. And, of course, now with the pandemic, that's an even bigger deal. And there, we are seeing some movement and some traction around that concept. But what, the, what a, a barrier seems to be that teachers – don't have the time and the resources and the comfort level to take 
to take children outdoors and to and to learn outdoors as much as as uh, uh, as, I, as I'd like to see the outdoors being used in that in that capacity. And Nancy Dorman goes on to give one standout example of the partnership of schools with the outdoor environment, like state parks. You know, one of the reasons I'm as familiar with the um, uh, Ivy Academy, the program at the Ivy Academy, is that uh, is that they have developed a, a special. It's almost a. It's like a high school major program in um, uh, environmental uh, that they call the. Uh, Tennessee State Parks Environmental Institute at Ivy Academy. And so they have uh, classes in four different content areas, and I, you don't, don't hold me to it, but one of, the mo- one of them is natural resources. And part of the reason that they have this relationship with Tennessee State Parks has to do with the fact that there's a state park that, that the school district or the school, school itself sits right on real estate or property that, that's right next door to a state park. What Nancy Dorman speaks about here connects back to our first podcast where we were discussing about how important it seems like outdoor education is to expose children to the environment so that when they are older, they are always environmentally conscious and aware of environmental issues. And again, this just stresses the importance of being able to bring kids to national parks and other outdoor experiences so that they can just be exposed. And like Alexa said, relating back to our first podcast, it really is just using exposure to spark children's pride within their natural environment. And I think this also sort of gets at this idea of a shared experience in the outdoors. I know, Alexa, in the first podcast, you shared with us a story of your school taking a field trip to a stream and how some of the kids were at first a little bit scared to get their feet wet and to get up close and personal with some of these bugs. And while I think it's great if individuals are able to have a personal one-on-one experience with the environment... Obviously, that may work better for some people. I also think it's fantastic if we can use the environment as a way to build community and our shared community as a way to introduce more people to the environment. Yes, Emma. And I would just like to say that yesterday I found a salamander outside and I decided to pick it up and bring it inside to show my family. And they all screamed and freaked out. (laughs) They freaked out. They didn't even want to see it. And I think that just goes to show how important it is to expose people to the environment. So while we were interviewing people, we also heard about some really interesting programs that we would also like to bring up in the podcast. So, for example, Wesley Bullock from the Kentucky Environmental Education Council talks about an interesting program for young leaders called AmeriCorps. Our most recent program, other than outdoor schools, is uh, the Environmental Education Leadership Corps, which is an AmeriCorps program, uh, which we're in our third year. Yeah, we recruit people to serve as an AmeriCorps member for one year, uh, well, at least one year. and they serve at sites around the, the state 
teaching. It's a little different this year, but, uh, because of COVID, but basically they'll serve at a place like a park or a university and they'll take on environmental education, uh, aspects for that park or university or lots of different types of sites. And within that program, um, they will go through our certification course to be trained as an environmental educator. Um, so they get that certification. Uh, or at least all the full-time members do. And so it's a benefit to them and also a benefit to the, the sites that might not otherwise be able to offer environmental education without the program. This sounds like a really awesome opportunity to immerse yourself in the natural world for a year. I think this is the perfect amount of time to really be able to learn a lot and sort of dig in to the issues in this specific site but also not so long that you can't then use that as a jumping point to inspire your future journeys. Going off of that, Kentucky started a program called the Green and Healthy Schools. And Wesley Bullock from the Kentucky Environmental Education Council speaks on this. We also, in 2007, started a program called Kentucky Green and Healthy Schools. And that gives uh, recognition and awards to student-driven projects in K-12 through schools. So um, it encourages students to come up with their own ideas for improving things like uh, their green spaces or the air quality in their schools. And then they come up with a plan and execute a plan in order to do that. We give awards for that. These green school awards are another way to incentivize schools as well as students to get involved in the environment. And so again, it makes students feel proud of the work that they're doing in addressing environmental issues, and it encourages them to continue to do that hard work. I think it's really cool, the similarities between this project and Jason Lee's research projects for his students. I think it's really interesting how they both encourage independent thought and students to get involved in the environment in their own ways that relates to their own personal experiences. Allie Crampton, who's an environmental scientist at the Tennessee Department of Environment and Conservation Office of Policy and Sustainable Practices, discusses combining food insecurity and environmental education, as well as barriers to the program due to COVID. My office... um kind of help with a summer feeding program to ensure that um, kids actually get to receive food in some of these areas where they may be food insecure. Um, and when we go in and, and help those um, housing complexes with the summer food program, we also offer environmentally themed, um, you know, playtime curricula kind of thing. So almost kind of like a day, a day summer camp. Um, every week that we would go in there. Well, last year we couldn't because of COVID. So instead we created um, a virtual summer camp and housed it on our webpage. So then the barrier there is just if people can access that, right? But we had a ton of different people, um, you know, add stuff to that webpage. We were hoping that, you know, teachers and parents alike would use it, um, to fill the time, I guess, that COVID would create since kids weren't able to go and do things that they normally would have during the summer. Yeah, so while people were locked at home, I honestly think that 
if anything good came out of COVID is that people actually had the time to, you know, go to parks because those were probably some of the few places people could go to. And the fact that families had resources to environmental education of sorts and something that could educate them on how to interact with this new opportunity that they had as they worked and learned from home. I think that is very admirable. So I agree with that, Tatiana. And first off, I think it's a really great idea to combine addressing community needs with pushing for environmental education as well. And I also think it's really interesting to see how these programs are adapting to larger barriers like COVID and how they're evolving to still push their platform. And as fantastic as all these outreach programs are, it's important to note that they're also spread really thin. For example, Allie Crampton only has three staff members on her team and Tara Poltzing, her department only has three educators. Some of those are working only part-time and the educators also have other work like public relations. So it's amazing all the work that they're able to accomplish with such small teams, but it's really interesting to think of all the potential that these departments could have if they had more resources like funding and team members. And that segues into the implementation of environmental literacy plans. When we were talking to Nancy Dorman, we were talking about like the great plan that Tennessee has developed, but also the drawbacks of implementation and the status of implementation in all the states, which currently is that they're not enforced. There are basically recommendations. But as it relates to implementation, um, the document has been largely aspirational, and um, there's individual organizations and uh, schools uh, have uh, adopted various aspects of it, um, including my own agency. But uh, as a uh, as a as a statewide initiative that had kind of top down. Uh, authority and uh, implementation that never that that never happened and that was really uh, uh, we kind of suspected that that would be what would be the the what would happen even when we were developing the plan um, that 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 the um, that the priorities of the state would not line up with um, this concern about environmental literacy. Um, and that that has turned out to be the case. Now, the one thing that we were able to get was a non-binding resolution uh, of something that we called the uh, Children's Outdoor Bill of Rights that said that, you know, by the uh, time a child graduates from high school, there are these 10 things that every child should do. And, and we were able to get the state legislature to, to, um, to, to do that. But... Um, Essentially, any adoption of the of the strategies that are identified in the plan have been um, piecemeal and uh, you know irregular at best, and uh, it's all just been dependent on the passion, the level of commitment of individual agencies and organizations. I think Nancy Dorman's emphasis on the end here about the commitment and dedication at the local level is really telling because just as we see the most effectiveness in education when we're able to really engage young children and give them specific interactive experiences, the same also holds true for educators and teachers 
when educators care more about the content they're teaching and they care more about their ability to spread this education to their students, then they're going to do a lot more and take more dedicated action and put more time and energy into making sure ELPs and curriculums are implemented into their own schools and classrooms. So moving on, Virginia adopted the template of the Environmental Literacy Plan, but it is not sufficient as it's not implemented and the department is not actually funded. And Tara Poulsing was able to speak on this. At the state level, I have been cheered to see Virginia incorporate environmental literacy into its Department of Education work. That happened a number of years ago. And they also recently adopted the um, environmental literacy plan template that was developed by the nonprofit Virginia Association for Environmental Education. Um, so that's a nice step. Those are you know, both nice steps, even though they feel kind of small. I think like Tara says, it's great that they're taking these steps in adopting these plans. And it seems like they really wanna take initiative. But I think the challenging aspect is that it still has to be implemented. And that means having the resources and funding available, as well as the support from schools and districts to be able to get this moving, which is a barrier when it comes to environmental education. Yeah, as Alexa said, these steps are extremely important but they can definitely be a bit underwhelming, especially as at the same time, there are negative contributions taking place, such as departments closing and organizations losing their resources. And Carol Doss speaks on what this experience can feel like. There used to be a state office of environmental education that was really uh, helped helpful because all the networks like SWEET, all the environmental education networks, we all worked with that office and they provided resources. Um, they would host meetings for us to get together and then we would share ideas and whatever resources. And the state just completely closed that office and they didn't really give any notice. And that really hurt SWEET and the other networks because we didn't really have we're kind of disconnected then, you know, because that, that office would bring us together. So, um, so many of these uh, other programs were so upset about this, they formed a different association. So now we have another, and I don't know, if, I think it's the Virginia Association for Environmental Education. So like Carol Doss said, this kind of fragmentation really sets back environmental education and any efforts that could have gone into it, because in a sense, you're losing that community aspect and you don't have that support system. We've definitely talked about the importance of networking and being able to share your experiences and successes with other educators. So it can feel very saddening and feel like we're losing a lot of progress to lose the structures that allow this conversation to happen in the first place. I do wonder, based on like the statements that we have been hearing that it's not a top-down approach and it's more community-based. And although that is an issue when it comes to implementation, because that's how we normally get education initiatives into districts and into schools, like that's the normal process. But I wonder if now 
environmental education is taking on this community approach, what does that say about other education initiatives? I wonder if this means that environmental education and the approach to addressing it is changing the pathway of how we implement education into the classrooms and across districts. So Eric Engel actually brings up a good point about, you know, we talk about drawbacks, we talk about progresses, but essentially it's important to highlight that, I mean, we have seen a significant progress in terms of, you know, moving past like the climate change debate and actually acknowledging it and, you know, thinking about solutions and and kind of addresses this as well as, well, what do we do now, now that people are gaining more knowledge of environmental education? He does highlight that we may not be at the level we want it to be at, but what is the path going forward from where we are now? So I think the main, we've kind of moved past what the main issues used to be, which was uh, even believing that global climate change is happening. You know, I think even the fossil fuels industry itself is starting to admit that, is giving up its decades-long and well-funded um, opposition to try to convince people that it's not even happening. And it's shifted to, okay, it's happening. And then, you know, it's gone through phases. So it went from, okay, it's happening to, oh, yeah, it's happening, but it's not our fault to, okay, it's happening and it is our fault, but there's very little we can do, to, okay, it's happening, it's our fault, there are things we can do, but we're going to devastate the economy and it's going to be too hard to transition and we just can't afford uh, to, in any way, shape, or form, to do it. So, you know, I think that um, that's actually progress because you've, you've had the industry that's most at fault for the problem admitting that it is a problem and that we are the primary source of that problem as human beings and that we've got to do something about it. And they sign on for certain policy proposals or certain, you know, regulations that they may be comfortable with, but it's not enough and it's not fast enough. So I think going forward, the biggest issue that we have is communicating how dire this is. Yeah, it's crazy to think about how much work has been done in the field of both the environment and environmental education and getting the public to understand the issues surrounding the environment, but at the same time, just how much more work needs to be done because we've had to spend so much time on communicating that environmental issues are real, environmental issues are going to impact us and they're going to impact us now. And as we are still in the process of getting over that hurdle just a little bit, the fact that the real work and the real education still needs to be done and still needs to be implemented. Yeah, Eric Engel talks about how it can be hard to have those conversations, but he says that it's necessary in order to get the point across. And it's also important to have these conversations with students so that implementation can be underway. That's what we try to stress when we go in and talk to younger people is we try to show them it's not just the shock and awe factor because we, you know, we make sure that we explain, number one, none of us are actually climate scientists who are presenting to you. We're not, you know, atmospheric physicists or climatologists or something. And, and number two, we're just sharing their data with you and citing our resources. But, and number two, we're not here to shock you. 
you know, weather attribution studies are done showing that some percentage of, of this event that we're showing you in this video was attributable to climate change, but we don't want you to go home and tell your parents that climate change is going to completely destroy the world, you know, today. <laughs> so so um, we do, we try to show them the severity of what's happening, show them the data, show them our source material for the data, um, and, and start conversations uh, without just scaring the hell out of them. Or <laughs> That's not the point. That's not the point. Yeah, so the truth of the environment sometimes can be extremely daunting and extremely scary, as Eric Engel says. But I think the point he gets at that having conversations about it and talking about it in a constructive way can mean all the difference in terms of making sure kids aren't too scared of the future and that they're still motivated to go into this field and try to find solutions. I think, again, that goes back to the idea of the support system and building that community so it isn't as scary, like Emma said. Yeah, and also making the conversation accessible and making the topic something that students are comfortable discussing. And that is something we're also trying to do with this podcast is making this information accessible, normalizing the conversation about environment, about the issues that are going on, and bring it to their attention and to the attention of people they then talk to. And to further encourage this conversation, we would like to invite you to find us on Twitter, at Let's Talk About EE, that's L-E-T-S-T-A-L-K-A-B-O-U-T-E-E, and let us know what you think about the topics we've discussed in today's episode. Alrighty, so now we're going to move to next steps and where environmental education is going from here. So when it comes to projects that are in the works, the Kentucky Environmental Education Council is working on building an outdoor school. Billy Bennett says, The thing that we think is going to make the biggest impact is we're getting ready. Uh, again, we're working with the lieutenant governor uh, and the cabinet leadership and uh, Kentucky Department of Education to establish uh, an outdoor school. Uh, and we're using Oregon as a model because they've been at this for 60 years and now they have funded it fully through the state. So we, we have proposed a three-year pilot. Uh, we'll be working uh, with, uh, initially we'll be working with places that already have a, a, a relationship with the school district. They already have a program in place. Um, so therefore we really, it's not gonna be a, a budgetary issue because the schools are already sending their people to these programs. Uh, these programs are already in place. We're not asking for a whole lot of change. We are asking them. Uh, we are right now working on some funding for the research aspect of it. We have two researchers, uh, one at Clemson and one at uh, Virginia Tech, that we'd like to uh, uh, find some funding for those folks to do this because they helped Oregon construct theirs, and they're willing to work with us to construct a Kentucky-specific uh, instrument and then do some training with the sites. So we're going to start off with four, four pilot sites. Uh, and let me just tell you real quickly, our requirements for the outdoor school program are going to be at least three consecutive days in duration, three to five consecutive days. Uh, and there has to be off-school grounds uh, and the experiential uh, 
learning should be outdoors primarily. So we don't want them just going in and going to a dorm somewhere and, you know, hanging out all day. Um, and uh, so that that's our plan right now, because that's what the research is pointing towards. Uh, in order for people to get to that point where they need to take collective action or, or you know, before you can start teaching them how to take collective action, you, you kind of need to connect them to you know, with the natural world and they need to feel that connection uh, in order for them to to be interested in taking that collective action. So this is a very exciting new project that Kentucky is taking on. And it goes to show that Kentucky is keeping up with the current research and is moving environmental education along and in the right direction. And it goes to show that they are aware of the resources available that they can use to know how to further environmental education. Yeah, I think this sets an example of what schools and other states can do with the resources at hand. And like Alexa said, this shows that Kentucky is keeping up with environmental education. And I think this sets an example for other states and what they can do. I also feel like our podcast talked about some great examples in other states as well, and that's a takeaway we hope educators get from this podcast as they listen to it, like some great examples, but also some points of improvement throughout. Yes, and going off of what Tatiana said, there are definitely a lot of barriers and challenges, but there are also some great dedicated educators pushing for change and carrying on environmental education for the next generation. We hope this podcast opens the floor to future conversations that inspire and educate educators around the country on this issue. Because at the end of the day, they're putting in the work and we're just talking about it. So we really hope that we have helped to put the spotlight on a lot of the issues that these educators are currently facing, but also some of the fantastic ways and creative ways they're able to successfully address it. And before we wrap up our podcast, we really wanted to take the opportunity to thank some really important people who have helped to make this project possible. First and foremost, that is Dr. Jessie Myler, our project mentor. She is a professor at American University and the director of the undergrad environmental science department. She has been an incredible resource and an amazing mentor to us, guiding us throughout this process providing some invaluable feedback, pushing us and challenging us to do our very best. And I honestly don't think this project would have been possible without her. We'd also like to thank the American University Honors Team who provided us the resources to complete this project throughout the semester. And finally, we would like to thank our interviewees who were able to give us a real world perspective for our research and provide invaluable information. We had some great conversations with them and they made this project so much more exciting and inspiring for us. And finally, we want to thank you listeners for joining us throughout this journey. It's been enlightening for us and we hope you've also learned something along the way. Before we go, we would like to invite you to find us on Twitter at Let's Talk About EE. That's L-E-T-S-T-A-L-K-A-B-O-U-T-E-E. We can't wait to hear about your own experiences, about the topics we've covered today. Thank you so much for joining us throughout this series.
We would like to credit our intro and outro song, that is Forest by Vlad Glushchenko. This is available under a Creative Commons Attribution 3 license and promoted by Audio Library. You can find the artist at soundcloud.com slash VGL9.